morning, and welcome to the October 2019 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, October is LGBTQ History Month, and the time each year when we take a moment to remember Matthew Shepard and the horrific murder that happened back in 1998 in Laramie, Wyoming. Tonight, we're going to begin by visiting the Raven Theater in Healdsburg and talking with the director and cast of The Laramie Project. It's being produced by the Raven Players there and will show to the community for one more weekend this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, if you're not familiar with this play, it's a famous one written originally by the Tectonic Theater Project right after the death of Matthew Shepard. The play tells the story through a series of reenacted interviews with some of the people of the town. In the second half of our show, we're going to talk about needle exchange programs and the one provided here locally by Face to Face. The opioid crisis certainly has prompted a lot of discussion here locally and throughout the United States about needle exchange and questions if they're contributing to the problem or if they're keeping us more safe. So stay with us. It's all coming up next right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, October 27, 2019. Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of October 27, 2019. In a bizarre story from Russia, D. Razumilov, a Russian man who filed a lawsuit against Apple over claims that his iPhone had turned him gay, has dropped his lawsuit to avoid negative publicity after news of the case went viral. Razumilov told his lawyer that, quote, haters found his information, Apple supporters began to write him, and this, combined with the prospect of publicity in court, compelled him to drop the case. His bizarre plight began in 2017 when he downloaded a cryptocurrency app onto his iPhone. Immediately after downloading it, he was rewarded with 69, quote, gay coins, a cryptocurrency. He said the unknown person then messaged him in English, allegedly saying, don't judge without trying. That was enough to get him to start having sex with men, he said. He wrote in his complaint, I thought, indeed, how can I judge something without trying it? And he decided to try same-sex relationships. Razmubalov broke up with his girlfriend and became a full-fledged gay man. He wrote, I can say after the passage of two months, I am mirrored in intimacy with a member of my own sex and can't get out of it. I have a steady boyfriend, and I don't know how to explain it to my parents. After receiving the aforementioned message, my life has changed for the worse and will never be normal again, end quote. He accused Apple of manipulatively pushing him toward homosexuality, and he sought one million rubles for his moral suffering and harm to mental health. And here in the U.S., the Mormon Church has officially come out in opposition to a Utah state bill that would ban the use of conversion therapy on minors. In a recently released statement, the church wrote that it opposed proposed rules outlined in the Utah Psychologist Licensing Act and Mental Health Professional Practice Act because they fail to protect individual religious beliefs and does not account for an important reality of gender identity in the development of children. The church wrote, quote, We teach the right of individuals to self-determine and the right of parents to guide the development of their children. We also believe faith-based perspectives have an important and ethically appropriate role in professional counseling, end quote. In February 2019, the church said it would oppose a state conversion therapy ban, but the bill being considered at that time died in the legislature. Now that the legislature has drafted new bills on behalf of Governor Gary Herbert, the church has gone against its earlier pledge not to interfere. So far, 18 U.S. states have banned conversion therapy for minors. 
And here locally, the Raven Players production of the Laramie Project continues this week with three final days of the show coming up this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Raven Theater in downtown Healdsburg. The Laramie Project is one of the most widely produced plays in recent history, and it tells the story of a vicious hate crime that occurred in Laramie, Wyoming back in 1998, where a young gay man named Matthew Shepard was murdered. You can get tickets and learn more about showtimes at ravenplayers.org. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Earlier this month, I had the opportunity to visit the Raven Theater in Healdsburg and to talk with director Stephen David Martin and cast members from the Raven Players production of The Laramie Project, the now famous play that tells the story of the murder of Matthew Shepard and how the people of Laramie, Wyoming reacted. So I'm here at the Raven Theater in Healdsburg, where a rehearsal is just about to get underway for their production of The Laramie Project. And I'm here with the director, Steve Martin, and several of the cast members to find out a little bit more about what brought this play to Healdsburg and what they hope to accomplish with this play. It's really a, quite an amazing uh, piece. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Raven Players and the Raven Theater, uh, Steve, tell us a little bit about the theater and the kinds of productions that you do. So the Raven Players are the uh, resident company of the Raven Performing Arts Theater in Healdsburg. We've been around for about 15 years. We do anywhere between five and eight plays a year. Uh, everything, very eclectic uh, seasons, everything from we do an outdoor Shakespeare every summer, we do a musical or two every year. We just did Young Frankenstein, the musical last year, Shrek, Anything Goes. We just closed Arsenic and Old Lace from the Laramie Project. We go on to a very uh, contemporary show that was written in 2017 called The Wolves about a teenage girls soccer team. And from that, we go into Mamma Mia, the ABBA sing-along, dance-along musical. And uh, then we do Barefoot in the Park by you know the late, great Neil Simon. So we have a very wide, very eclectic season because we are community theater. So we try to do things that will appeal to our entire community. Really cool. And how long has the company been together? Uh, about 15 years. Okay, so very well established uh, for sure. I hope so. And, and, <laughs> and, and where do the actors and actresses come from? Are they all from this local community or do you draw from a, a wider range? Mostly Sonoma County. Sometimes we get actors as far south as Nevada, even you know, San Rafael, uh, Petaluma, uh, Cloverdale, Healdsburg, Windsor, Santa Rosa. That's usually where our actors come from. Awesome. Well, it is October, which is LGBTQ History Month. And as we mentioned earlier in the introduction, this is also the time when we typically remember the story of Matthew Shepard. So the Laramie Project, it's one of the most widely produced shows by colleges, universities and high schools. Uh, It's it's infamous, truly. What prompted you to bring it to Healdsburg now in 2019? That's a really good question. Uh, I have actually thought about doing it the last two or three years, and for some reason this year seemed like the year to do it. Um, It it coincides with, uh, as you probably well know, Greg, the uh, increase in hate crimes over the last three years, which shockingly coincides with the current administration. Uh, I feel like we're led by uh, a so-called leader who has not only made it tacitly okay to hate somebody who is other than yourself, but he's actually come out and said it's okay. Hey, there are nice people on both sides. So I feel like this is a time where the story, 
not that there's a time where this story isn't relevant and important, but this is a, a particularly important time for this story to be told. And I was just reading uh, Denison and Judy Shepard's uh, statement today to Attorney General Barr about the 10th anniversary of the hate crime, the uh, Shepard Bird Hate Crime Act, and how uh, he, they feel, I think rightfully so, that this administration is paying lip service to, uh, to uh, acknowledging, protecting, and, and, and as Judy Shepard, tolerance is a, is a strange word because we shouldn't have to tolerate people. We, we are people. Yeah. And so I feel like this show, as a community theater, we owe it to everybody, all aspects of our community, to remind us that we are all part of the same community and that a hate crime against any section of our community is, is a hate crime against us. Well said, well said. Uh, and I think you had an important point. The current administration is trying to do everything they can do to undo everything that was done yeah. up to yeah. this point. And fortunately, this is grounded in law, the Hate Crimes Act you referred to. But I think the cynical part of me says if they had a chance to undo it, they would. So we have almost the entire cast here with us tonight. Uh, let's go around the room, have you introduce yourself and talk about your favorite character. Katie Watts Whitaker, and my favorite character is uh, Romaine Patterson. Stephen David Martin, my favorite character is the director. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Farrell, my favorite character is Doc O'Connor. Grace Reed, my favorite character is Aaron Kreifels. Austin Schmidt, and my favorite character is Jedediah Schultz. Uh, Elizabeth Henry, and I have two favorite characters, uh, Zachy Salmon and Catherine Connolly. Athena Gundlach, and my favorite character is Marge Murray. Oh, yes, Marge. (laughs) Awesome, awesome. You know, my students uh, who are college age, a lot of them don't even know who Matthew Shepard is. They don't know the story at all. So I'm curious, because there's some wide ranging of ages here in the the company. Let's just go around real quickly. Tell me what you remember or how you learned about Matthew Shepard. When was the first time that you heard the story? Um... I, I remember it very well, and I think that I remember the story kind of through the lens of this play, because I've you know been an actor for a long time, and, um, and I just remember reading it, I remember seeing it, and, and I remember it really connecting me to the story. Well, I'm 41 now, so I'm, I'm better at acting than math. So <laughs> um, I graduated high school in 1995, so this was like two, year, two, three years after I graduated high school. And so I, I remember it well. Um, but a lot of people do not. Like now we've asked, you know, we've gone around a lot and asked, do you know who Matthew Shepard was? And, and people don't know anymore. Even people that were adults then, they don't. No, so it's it's been really good to remind people. Yes, and this play just tells the story so well. Stephen, how about you? Well, I was actually teaching in Salem, Oregon in 1998 when all this happened. And Oregon, as you know, is only a couple of states uh, over from Wyoming. And it was right after, it was a few months after uh, Mr. Bird was dragged through the streets in Jasper, Wyoming. So, of course, at that time, I'm thinking, wow, there's a state I never want to go to. And uh, I remember what hit me most that is, is told so well through the play is that one of the things you take away from this play is that, it, as, as Dennis Shepard said, there is, uh, there is good in the evil. There is light in the darkness. And one of the things I remember is, is a tremendous outpouring of compassion from all over the world. That, that, that stuck with me. And I think it was, 
it, it was taking that abstract of, oh, this is a hate crime and putting a face on it, an individual human being. And that struck me as something that was very powerful. And of course, at that time, echoing your cynicism, I thought, okay, here we go. We're going we're gonna to make a lot of progress. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, we've made some progress, but I, I echo your, your feeling that if this administration had their druthers, they'd tear it all apart again. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I was 15 when it happened. I was in high school in Tamales, and um, I remember the name. I was a sophomore, and I didn't know the story, but I was the year before Columbine as well, so, you know, violence was continuing to happen even after this happened. So uh, I should mention that I did this show eight years ago in Larkspur, so it was my second time doing the show. So um, it still resonates with me today. It still resonates with with then, so... Yeah, it becomes really quite a powerful experience uh, for everybody involved, for sure. And I think it's particularly powerful if you don't know the story and you're experiencing it for the first time on the stage. At least that's what I've been told by folks who have, who have acted in it. Um, yeah, I was born the year after Matthew Shepard was killed. Um, so I didn't know anything, pretty much, um, up until uh, I came out freshman year, so probably like 2012. And I was very uh, naive, and I didn't really... I understood that there was hate against gay people, but I don't think I really understood until after I came out. And, you know, my parents sat down with me and was like, listen, this is a thing that's happening. And they did tell me about Matthew Shepard. And I learned about that, you know, then, but I really did learn more about it once I delved into it. And I think you are correct where it is very impactful being in it, not knowing a lot of what happened. Right, right. So I was six when Matthew Shepard was killed, and as such, I didn't really know or understand what was going on, and had only up until um, I was asked to be in the play, um, heard of the play. I hadn't really heard Matthew Shepard's story or um, really knew what the play was even about. The reason I got into the play was somebody else who was in it couldn't uh, continue to be in it, and I literally had to get the script because I was going to my brother's wedding and I made my brother drive effectively to his own wedding because (laughs) I had to read this script and I was driving with the little passenger light on, crying on the way to my brother's wedding uh, because it's truly tragic. It's it's incredible um, the magnitude to which people can hate as... um, it's said in the play, um, and I knew that it was something I couldn't not do. Yes, I was trying to take a break from acting because I'd just done like three different shows in a row, but this was not this was not something that I could take a break mm-hmm. from. So good. Yeah, I looked at the season that Stephen put put together for this uh, this whole theater season, and this was the play that I wanted to do. This was the one that I really felt compelled to be part of. I was a young mother when uh, Matthew Shepard was murdered. Um, I didn't really know this. I I wasn't uh, in a space where I watched the nightly news. I was very consumed with my children. But I remember being absolutely appalled and shocked and concerned about the world in which I was bringing up my my children. And it uh, it it was amazing. And it was right around that time that I first heard somebody use the term lifestyle. Oh, well, I don't agree with their lifestyle, talking about you know, the gay people, like, as if it was a choice. And I was, remember being extremely shocked that 
people could think that it was a choice as I, I wasn't born hetero, uh, you know, I, I didn't choose to be attracted to men. That's how I was born. Yeah, I came into this play really wanting to know how a community would deal with that because I felt like it could happen here. Sure. Well, and, you know, Laramie has been described as a small town, 30,000 people or so. It is a small town by all rights. I think one of the tragedies, one of the many tragedies out of this whole story is the label that Laramie was assigned after that tragedy because having visited there a few times, it, it's a very, very warm, well, not in the wintertime, <laughs> but, but it's a very warm place. People are very welcoming. They're they're very very nice, and I've never felt uncomfortable there. And so, you know, from uh, as an outsider, and if you see the play, you think, my gosh, what a horrible, hateful place. This play is written so well that you you know you don't walk away from it feeling that way, because even the characters who you might not agree with and who are conflicted themselves, you see such humanity in so many of these people, and it it. it also makes you go, I see how this happened. You know, like you look at people and, and it's things like this. It is, it easily happens. Sure, sure. So tell me, when did you first hear about the story? I was living outside of San Juan, Puerto Rico when Matthew Shepard was killed. And I was uh, <clears throat> actually in a gay bar in San Juan. And we all piled out, and there was a kind of uh, spur of the moment happening. Um, and I actually found out about it through <clears throat> the graces of Armed Forces Television, <laughs> because we got local news and we got national news, and that's how we heard about it. Um, and uh, everybody there was just in complete shock. And then we all got really scared because we realized, heck, this could happen anywhere, you know? And you never really know what's underneath the surface of a person you meet. Um, my second run-in with it was in college. I was a non-traditional student, and the, my freshman year, the school did Laramie Project in, uh, at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. And we, uh, our, our state senator came and we did talkbacks and we had to stop a show and have a guy escorted out because he started screaming, kill the fags and all that stuff. So um, that, was my, that was my first experience with the play and I wasn't in it, I was just there as in the audience. And it really um, got its hooks into me then. And when I saw that uh, Stephen had put it on the, schedule for this season, I kind of bugged him. And I said, so, uh, Laramie, 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 can I do it? Can I do it? And he said, there might be a part for you. And I was grateful to him to, to be able to experience it. <clears throat> yeah, I, I love the fact that you describe it as an experience, because that's the whole idea, right? Yeah. Is it's an experience not only for the cast, but an experience that you try to create for the community. Yeah. And I've seen it done in so many different ways. Um, all have been equally powerful, but all very, very different. Stephen, talk about your approach to how you're going to present this work. 
Um, I, uh, as you said, Greg, it, it's, an, it's an experience. So unlike other you know, sort of plays that we're used to seeing and going and people playing characters in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, this is a, uh, a story, as we talked about from the beginning. It's a, it's a story unlike a campfire story where you're relaxing around the campfire and you can just take your time. This is an urgent story that has to be told. So the challenge is we have got 10 actors and there's 60 roles in the play. So each actor is playing you know, multiple characters. So the challenge is to tell the story distinctly, clearly, make sure everybody knows what's going on while we're changing characters and make sure that the audience can tell who's playing what. Now the playwrights, of course, help you out by introducing a lot of the characters, but sometimes they don't. So, <laughs> so it's just a matter of, of establishing, I hope we, what we establish is a play area where the audience knows that they are part of the story and that it's almost like we're putting on different hats to play different characters. We're not gonna have huge scene changes. It's a very you know, representational set. There are some projections. There are titles to help you know where you are. And I just depended on having actors versatile enough and committed enough and passionate enough and human enough to be able to take on each of these characters fully. And I think that's one of the most, you should ask them, but I think that may be one of the most challenging things is to fully inhabit a character 100% while you're in it, in that moment and then be willing to change on a dime to another character two lines later. Yeah. Well, it is. And it's, and it's very different than I think, I'm going to guess, than most of the acting experiences that you've all had where you're really focused in on trying to dive into one character and now you're doing six. In a, in a very intense way. I'm curious what you have learned from your characters. Uh, before we went on the air, we talked about w who some of the people you were playing or your favorite characters, but you know, I'd like you to think about maybe one or two of the characters that you're playing and what impacted you the most about that character or what you learned that you think is most significant from that experience. Um, I play Romaine Patterson and I love her um, and I've learned that you can take a, you know, she was a very good friend of Matthew Shepard's and from this she created angel action and she became a political activist and she took a tragedy and she tried to make the world a little bit better and um, you know, you can't be apathetic and um, to have something like this happen to someone that you love so dearly and to be able to have the strength and the courage to stand up to someone like Fred Phelps and um, just have that strength, it, it just made me know that I want to, as me in, in this life, always stand up for what I believe in and not keep my mouth mm -hmm. shut and try in my way every day to try to make the world a little bit better. Thank you for that. Well, as... Katie just mentioned Fred Phelps. I play Fred Phelps, and <laughs> this is very hard for me because he is one of the most evil people, or was, he's dead now, one of the most evil people ever to walk this face of the earth. Um, and to spew this hatred that he spewed with his filthy mouth and his followers is just so difficult, and to, I have to directly yell at Katie, and that is so difficult because I love her. Um, you know, I adore you. Um, so yeah, um, it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's fantastic. And also I play a Baptist minister who hates homosexuals. I play Conrad Miller who hates homosexuals. He plays all the bad guys. I'll play all the bad guys, basically. Um, so I get to stretch, but Fred Phelps is by far the most challenging. But um, I hate him, but I love playing him, so yeah. Okay. yeah. 
Um, I also play uh, Zubaida Ullah, who is a um, Islamic feminist, and um, she has a monologue in Act Two where she kind of talks about, you know, like what a lot of people have mentioned already uh, about how, like, why it happened in Laramie specifically. And uh, she does go into, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And so I think she, just the way that she's so um, conflicted in her own mind, because she also knew the boy who killed Matthew Shepard, and she knows, you know, um, it is wrong, but she does have that extremely human conflict. And that's something that I didn't really expect uh, from her. And so I think she really reminds me to kind of keep it human, so. Mm. Um, I have two favorite characters. I, I get to do Dennis's monologue at the end of the play, and I just love that monologue. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. Um, but my favorite character to play is Stephen Mead Johnson, the Unitarian pastor. And um, <laughs> he's a lot of fun. I just love, he's got, although he's talking about serious things, he does it in a lighter way and sort of reminds everybody of how human you need to be in the face of all of this stuff that was going on. Yeah, I'm, you're, you're just bringing back memories of all these different characters. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I like that one, too. <laughs> Jedediah Schultz was definitely the character, or is definitely the character who's teaching me the most. Um, because we see kind of the most development from him throughout the play that I, I've noticed. Um, and what really stands out about that role to me is the fact that you really get to see the conflict which is discussed in the play, which is, you know, how do you deal with a society that brought you up to disagree with homosexuality and how do you personally deal with that? Because um, as he says at the very end, he tried not to be personally involved for the longest time because it just didn't seem real. It was blown out of proportion um, to some extent, or at least that's how it felt at first. And how does he come to terms with his own feelings towards that, plus the feelings of his religion and his parents? Um, and how does he come out a better person for it? Um, and so learning that even if you're not where you should be, you always have a place to go is huge, no matter who you are and no matter where you're at in life. Yeah, nice. He's a good role model. He's a good role model. Well, as... Uh as they're going around, I'm thinking, oh, I'd like to talk about when I have the speech about the minister's wife, because she's so human. She's so unconscious of her bias against homosexuality. She's so dismissive of this person's death. You know, she's like, oh, yes, it's so tiring that what's happening here, you know. And that, to me, is the scariest one of the scariest moments in the play, there are several like that. Several people play several characters who say similar things. And the fact that they're, it's not, they're not owning the crime. They're not taking responsibility for it in their community. That's frightening. So my favorite character, as I said earlier, is Marge Murray. And Marge Murray is the ground. She is rock solid, just a good human being. But I also play Eileen Engen who scares the living daylights out of me because, and, and it's a very small role. There's only like four, maybe five lines, but she 
is completely unconscious and 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 unaware of what's really happening and she's in her box and she doesn't look past the box ever and um that closed offness in a human being um is really challenging for me and it's important for me to remember that there are huge numbers of people in this country who are like that. And I really, really hope that people who come and see either this production or any of the other productions ever done of the Laramie Project, that one person like that will maybe have the box crack open a little bit so that they can step outside and realize that they're not, that the world is big enough for everyone, gay, straight, whatever. Yeah. It would be hard to watch this play and not have that happen, but we know how stubborn people can be. Yeah, yeah. so that's a great segue uh, in coming back to you, Stephen, and talking about what is it you hope to accomplish as you bring in this play to Sonoma County in 2019? Well, I, I think that we tend to think of ourselves as, you know, this liberal enclave and that, that we're going to be preaching to the choir during the show. And, and I think that may be true in, in some ways, but I also know one of, the, my favorite, one of my favorite characters, he just walked in, is Father Roger Schmidt because he says yeah. some of my favorite things in the show. And I think that we, we can get comfortable. You know, we can get, we can get a little cocky with our, our liberalness and our inclusiveness, and we are not put to the test like a lot of people around the world are every single day of their lives just for being who they are. And um, I hope that we, that the audience who comes see this show are, are engaged, are entertained. We tell them things they don't know. Maybe they know the Matthew Shepard story, but they don't know the details. But I also think as, as, Roger, as Roger, it's a cautionary tale, I think, as Roger Schmidt says, um, the, the, he, he, I love that when he says, I think that, you know, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson as part of their, as part of their uh, sentencing should tell their story. Tell us how this happened. And he also says it starts relatively innocuously when you call somebody a fag, when you call somebody a les, a dyke. That is, as he says, the seed of violence. And I hear it. I hear it in Healdsburg. I hear it in Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. And I think it it behooves us to, to take a moment and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not good with that. I'm really not good with that. And the more that we can do that on a daily basis, the less it becomes this huge, unwieldy issue and the more it becomes a human, person-to-person issue and a community issue. Mm-hmm. So I hope we can take a little bit of that with us when we come see the play. Yes. Well, and speaking of coming to see the play, the show is airing right in the middle of the run. Yeah. And if you haven't had a chance to get up to the Raven Theater to see the Laramie Project. You have one more weekend coming up, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Where can people go to get tickets? They can go to our website, ravenplayers.org, or they can get tickets at Copperfields in Santa Rosa and in Healdsburg. Well, if you missed that website, we'll put it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. You can click on show notes at the top of the page, and we'll have a link where you can go to get tickets. You don't want to miss one more weekend of the Laramie Project. Uh, congratulations to you all. Thank you for the service that you're doing to our community and break a leg. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCBFM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, the opioid crisis in the United States and right here in Sonoma County is a problem of growing concern. 
And aside from the problems opioids pose to individual users, the needles and related gear pose health risks to the greater community, including facilitating the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. Face-to-Face has been at the forefront of responding to the HIV epidemic since the beginning and is now on the front lines of the IV drug use problem by providing a needle exchange program designed to reduce the spread of HIV and hep C. I had a chance to sit down with Lori Violette, who's the Director of Prevention Programs at Face-to-Face, to talk about this program and to dispel some of the myths. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, it's great to have face-to-face back here, and this is your first time on Outbeat Radio, yeah? Absolutely. I'm excited. Excellent. Well, for our listeners who may not have met you yet, tell us a little bit about your background, and specifically, where did your passion come from for doing this kind of work? Yeah, so my background, um, I have no lived experience background with this work. Um, However, I have a lot of compassion and want to make a difference in Sonoma County, want to be able to help people um, make changes in their life if that's what they want to do, um, and just provide people with love and compassion and respect as they as they are. Um, yeah, I at growing up as a child, my both of my parents were um, addicted to drugs, um, so it was kind of a normal thing in my household. Um, so as a grown, as I got grown and had children of my own, I realized how it was not so normal. Um, so I did not follow the path of my parents. Um, and and I'm proud that I don't have that issue in my life. So face to face, we've had on the show a a bunch of times and it's always been around HIV testing and HIV prevention and the wonderful work that face to face has done really since the beginning of the epidemic and syringe exchange programs overall, I think are relatively new to this area and it's a it's a relatively new program for face-to-face so give us a little bit of history about syringe exchange and the connection with face-to-face sure yeah so syringe exchange um has been authorized in sonoma county since 1996 um and that authorization used to look like every week the person would have to go in front of the board of supervisors and they would have to approve the exchange to happen due to an emergency in that county. Basically a need that the county wanted a service to happen, such zip, whatever, get rid of that. Um, uh, And so when I began, um, it was us providing um, clean works and um, HIV prevention and hepatitis C prevention, um, education and supplies to people in an alleyway behind community market. Um, And so we would go out there every Friday night and pile up all of our supplies and bring it out there and we would serve 60 to 90 people in a two hour chunk of time. Um, and so that's kind of how it began, um, when I came on board and then let's fast forward, say, you know, 15 years later, um, the need of more sites being available in Sonoma County face to face stepped up to the plate and said, well, this is a need that needs to happen. Um, how can we work and how can we make it happen? Um, and at that point, face to face had zero funding to, help support that service, but did it because they knew it was the right thing to do. Um, 
then soon after that, um, we'll fast forward again a couple years um, to January 2016 is when I became, I was offered a position here at Face to Face. So I, um, I came over here, started working here, and we expanded the syringe service program. And we went from having a couple days a week as drop-in to having 32 hours a week um, and us being the largest syringe service program in the county. So there's been a lot of stories in the news about the opioid problem uh, in the United States. How big is the problem here in Sonoma County and how does this syringe exchange program fit in with that rising problem? That's a great question. Um, so our response to um, the opioid crisis in um, Sonoma County is we have ramped up our overdose prevention efforts. We want to make sure that everybody who comes in as a participant of our program leaves with the life-saving reversal medication um, and is trained on how to recognize and respond to an overdose. Um, so we are responding to the response of the community. Um, we have definitely seen a large uptake in new um, clients coming in for services. Our naloxone um, distribution has doubled since uh, two years ago. So we are providing way more naloxone to the community than we once have. We and and the, the naloxone that you're talking about is a, an overdose reversal medication, right? That's correct. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we do have the nasal naloxone, so it's it's r really easy for lay persons to be able to use and administer. Awesome. I think listeners might be thinking that having a syringe exchange program in a place or anywhere where there's a rising drug use problem or opioid problem mm -hmm. would be feeding the problem. Mm. So what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, my thought about it and my knowledge and what I believe to be true is that people are going to do what they're going to do regardless if there's a service available. So by us having a service like what we offer here, it's really keeping the community safer and it's keeping individuals safer. It's not increasing uh, substance use. It's not increasing injection drug use. Um, it's just having it be a safer environment um, and actually decreasing, contrary to popular belief, um, littered syringes and needle sticks, unwanted needle sticks and that type thing. Right. I mean, I guess the obvious thought about that is that having a syringe exchange program available in a community is not going to inspire someone to start using heroin, for example. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, it's not going to encourage it. Just like, you know, providing condoms in schools isn't going to encourage people to have sex. They're going to have it. They're going to have it. Same with substance use. Right. So the idea then is to reduce the risk and the overall impact on public health. That's right. And so for people who don't maybe understand the direct connection with syringe exchange and that service and reducing HIV in Sonoma County, which is really central to Face-to-Face's -to -face mission. Give our listeners a, a little bit of an explanation for that nexus. Yes. So with the connection between HIV and um, people who use drugs and people who primarily who inject drugs um, is the risk with the, the needle sharing. Um, and so when folks don't have access to getting new sterile supplies, 
folks will use what they have um, to use the substance that, that they are using. Um, it's the number one prevention method with the Center of Disease Control. It is something that um, we highly um, agree with, obviously, that we support and that um, we want to reduce the risk of new HIV transmissions or transmissions in general happening in Sonoma County. Yeah, because that needle provides really the perfect way to transport the virus from the bloodstream of someone who's infected to someone who's not infected, right? Because that that needle provides the oxygen-free environment. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. So with blood being one of the fluids that can transmit HIV, right, um, if a needle is shared, that, that it's like a really a nice little incubation area for that virus to live from one person's body to another. So sharing a needle is a, a definitely a risk for HIV, Um and so, yes, absolutely. And so having those services available, people are able to stay safer. They're able not to have to share needles. They're able to get their own supplies and dispose of them properly. And, and so you mentioned also the, the, the works, the other gear, equipment, supplies that people use and need to, to inject drugs. Can HIV be transmitted through those pieces as well? So the other works, such as like tourniquets and cottons and cookers, um, those type of things are not a risk for transmission of HIV, but it is a risk of transmission for hepatitis C, which hepatitis C is um, a very sturdy virus that can live in oxygen. So sharing any of the other type of equipment for um, for people who you, who inject drugs, those are risk factors for hep C, but not HIV, just the needle for HIV. Okay. And I've heard that people who contract or have hepatitis C are potentially more susceptible or more easily infected with HIV, maybe because of the environment they're in or, or because their immune system's weakened. Is there any truth to that? So there are there is a connection between HIV and hepatitis C, um, and there are a, a a portion of people who are co-infected with HIV and Hep C. Um, it is true that if you have one or, that you're more susceptible of getting the other, however, it really is geared around risk factors. So it's not just who we are or what we have, it's kind of behaviors that we engage in. Got it, got it. So once the program got launched uh, and, and word got out there that this was available, how did agencies like the local police department, Santa Rosa PD, react? Yeah, so we have a, um, a collaboration with the police department. We work with them as well as they work with us. They know the work that we're doing and we know the work that they do. We respect one another in that fashion. Um, and so we have not had any negative responses from the Santa Rosa Police Department um, or other agencies in the area around the services that we do provide. Okay. And talk a little bit more about how the program is funded. Who is actually paying for all the supplies? Is that all on donors or are there grants? Sure. Yeah. So thankfully that um, in 2017, um, monies was released to be, for us to be able to apply for some state money to um, 
supply our syringe service program. That has never happened before. It was the first time ever in the history. Um, and so we were super thankful that we were able to receive funding. The funding comes um, directly from the California Department of Public Health, which um, has a program called the Syringe Clearinghouse. And that supplies us with our supplies and our biodisposal, biohazard disposal, I should say, um, for a year um, amount of time. Wow. So how many syringes are we talking about? What, what's the, or what's the, can you give us a sense of what the total cost of that is? The cost benefit, if you will, to face to face? Yeah, sure. So the cost benefit from um, preventing an HIV infection, I think that's kind of what you're asking me from preventing an infection then to treating an infection. So a prevention method is at least three times less expensive than to treat. And so prevention we know does work. Um, I don't know numbers as far as like to throw it out there because that really changes often. You know, it changes depending on, you know, what the demand is and what the cost of the syringes are and the cost of other supplies. Um, we go through about $60,000 worth of um, supplies per year at here at Face to Face only. And that's strictly for a syringe service program. Wow. So we're not talking about just a few people that come in and benefit from this service. There's a lot of people and a lot of supplies that we're providing to people that are potentially saving some lives. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, we do. We, we, we have a lot of supplies that come in and go out of our doors, um, come in by the supplier and then go out by our participants. And we have a, a pretty good portion of folks that are our satellite exchange um, or secondary exchange, if you will. But it's a basically it's a, a program set up, um, which is effective, which people will come in and pick up supplies for several others, 10 to 20, maybe even more other people. So those folks that will not come to get supplies from us will get them from our satellite participant. So it makes sense to me now that why the state's involved, why there's a state's interest in funding these kinds of programs, because it's a whole heck of a lot less to fund syringe exchange and put aside all the health benefits and the lives that we're saving. I mean, that's invaluable. Mm -hmm. But but there is, when it comes down to the dollars and cents, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to provide people with clean needles and gear than it is to treat people for HIV and Hep C, if I understand you right. Yes, absolutely. It is a whole lot cheaper. And, you know, for hep C, the treatment for hep C now is, um, it, you know, it's eight week long treatment with no interferon. So people can cure hep C. HIV, we haven't got there yet, um, but it's still a whole lot cheaper to prevent than to treat. Right. Let alone all of the infections that we are preventing mm -hmm. by by not having a dirty needle transmit that virus. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, so how does it work? Do people have to come in with uh, a certain number of needles and then they're given that same number back? Talk a little about the process. If, if someone is going to come into face-to-face, -face, what are the requirements and what does it look like? Sure, that's a great question. So our services here for our syringe exchange program 
has a very low threshold of requirements. Um, a person would walk into our doors, um, they would be greeted by the receptionist. The receptionist um, would find out what they're visiting us today for and once they find out they're here for syringe service, they would call for the person that day to come down or to come out and um, help that individual. So they would bring the person on into our um, syringe service room and um, if folks have supplies to dispose of, which I'm referring to, if they have their used works or used needles that they want to um, properly dispose of, we have a biohazard space where they would put their disposal um, syringes in there. Um, we are not a one-for-one -one exchange program. That is the least effective way of HIV prevention and hep C prevention. We are a needs-based distribution site. So what that means is that somebody can come in to our location without, um, say, any syringes at all and leave with enough syringes so that they can be safe without having to share supplies or needles um, until they're able to make it back to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, and I think the real benefit there is there's a space to deposit the needles because we haven't talked yet about the, the health hazard that's posed when needles are just discarded and left on the ground in whatever space it happens to be. Because as you mentioned, hep C can survive in that needle uh, for, I imagine, a fairly good amount of time. So there are real safety risks to particularly children. Absolutely, yeah. So everybody who comes into our program, we they will leave with a bio container, which um, one is a little smaller one. It looks it's black in color and it holds about twenty syringes. And then we have other ones that are red that can hold, you know, fifty to a hundred syringes. And then we have ones that can hold several thousand syringes. So depending on the needs of the person, a people will leave with a safe way to contain their used supplies and a safe way to bring them back to us. So that's an important piece of a syringe service program um, is so that folks are educated on how to properly dispose and carry them. Perfect. And you mentioned education. When someone is, is coming in and they're getting some supplies, there's also access to education and other services that face-to-face -face provide. So tell us a little bit about what people can expect? What, what can they leave with in addition to supplies? Absolutely. So um, kind of just going back to how, what to expect when a person would come in, they would come in, they would get the supplies that they need. They would meet with the person who is um, either the volunteer for that day or the staff for that day. And it's a very non-judgmental environment. So people can be who they are. Um, and we are not judging them for their lifestyle or for their behaviors or anything like that. Um, we have a, a array of resources for folks that when they come in from um, naloxone distribution, which is the antidote to an opiate overdose, to um, referrals for health care, for, for um, food, for housing, for drug treatment, for medicated assisted treatment, um, and anything else that is available in our county, shelters and so on and so forth. So we we really meet the people where they are at and provide them with what they need. We do not push anything down anybody's throats and make them leave with information, but we are here if they want it and if they need it, it's available to them. Wow, what a service. And with a homeless problem that we're facing in Sonoma County and really everywhere in California, but here I would have to imagine that this is just invaluable. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's an, an invaluable service um, for folks that don't have permanent housing as well as folks that are people who use drugs that, that, that need safe ways to um, be able to use their substance. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other show, right? The, the rising problem uh, we have all over this country. What about the community itself, the surrounding community? Uh, face-to-face is located right on 2nd Street in downtown Santa Rosa. How's the neighborhood been in terms of their acceptance or understanding of the services that face-to-face is providing there? Yeah, we haven't had any um, big issues or anything with our our area or with our surrounding neighbors. Um, our clientele um, that comes in for the services, we we ask them not to linger around or to hang around and to, you know, um, quickly just get to their cars or, you know, continue on down the street to where they're going. Um, and so we haven't had a whole lot of problems about that. Um and so we, we, you know, we try to nip things in the bud when they happen. Um, and with saying that, also being able to provide, not just telling somebody to get off of our property, but being able to provide them a place that they can go, that they can hang out safely, um, not necessarily use safely, because, you know, we don't have safe consumption sites yet, um, but a place that they can go um, and, you know, be, be who they are and receive services. Yeah. Hey, well, you mentioned safe injection sites. Uh, I think I read a story about maybe one of the first ones being uh, authorized by a court or being allowed by a court in Philadelphia. And there's been a lot of conversation here and even some proposed legislation that would provide that avenue for communities here in California. But for folks who really haven't thought this all through yet, when I hear safe injection site and I haven't really thought about the pros and the cons and the health benefits of it, it almost seems like we would be enabling people. We would be encouraging drug use. So give us your perspective on safe injection sites and how they would contribute to improving this problem and the health threat as opposed to contributing to drug use. I believe that, um, well, first, let me just disclose this. When I first heard of safe consumption sites a few years ago, I was like, what, 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 how and why? Like I had no knowledge about what it was and actually what was the service that was available there. Once I got educated about that, I am a supporter of that. I feel that um, for so many different reasons, it's the right thing to do. One is there's zero overdose deaths at any safe consumption site that is open. It is a way to help reduce public injecting. It's a way to help reduce um, syringes being disposed of improperly. Um, it's a way for folks to get into healthcare services. It's a way for people to get into drug treatment services um, and lots of other services that are available. Just like with the syringe exchange program where resources are a big piece of that, um, same thing with the safe consumption site. So it's, it is a controversial subject, um, and I know California is moving forward with that in San Francisco, um, and I look forward to seeing some future talk about that and some future support about that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what impact it has on moving the health problem off the street into a place where it can be supported and potentially made better. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think safe injection sites or safe consumption site, as you called it, would be something that's face-to-face would be involved in? 
You know, I, at this time, I, I wouldn't, I would think that we would be involved in it and be involved with it as much as sharing the knowledge that we have about it, maybe being a part, a player, a collaborative player within it. I don't see that being a site that we would hold here at Face to Face. We're not equipped nor have the space here for it. But I do think that with the knowledge that our program has, we could be a benefit for um, setting that up. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the HIV testing campaign that Face to Face has coming up this fall. You've got some dates in November where you're offering some incentives for people to come in and get tested. Tell us about that. Yes, thank you. So November 12th through the 22nd here at Face to Face, anybody who comes in for an HIV or a hepatitis C test will leave not only knowing their status for each of those viruses, but also with an incentive card, which is $10 for a local store in the area. Um, and this is just to encourage individuals to know their status um, and to, to come check us out and get some services that we have available to them. We also will be providing that um, same type of campaign, which incentive would be involved in December, which December is World AIDS Day. December 1st of every year is World AIDS Day. So we will be providing incentives for folks who come in and determine their status with us that day too. Um, So let's talk about some of the high-risk populations for HIV today, those populations where we're seeing the greatest number of new infections. I mean, clearly throughout history, men who have sex with men are are at some level of risk and should be tested regularly. But are there is there a particular demographic where those new infection rates are rising? Yeah, good question. So with what we see here at Face to Face and what we see in our county is the newer rates of HIV are younger individuals. Um people of color um, and women that have been an increase the last couple of years. But really, um, you, you a person doesn't know their status unless they test, regardless if they're all of that or none of that. It's really an, just to know is to test. Right. Good advice. And if you're worried about the test or have never been tested and are concerned about what happens with the mystery of it all, uh, we'll put a link on the website for this show that will take you back to a show we did about a year ago where we took you behind the scenes and made visible exactly what happens during a test counseling session. So you'll be able to listen to exactly the questioning that takes place, the counseling that takes place, and a description of how the test is administered. It is a painless process. And the folks at Face to Face are well-trained on how to administer that test in a very supportive and non-judgmental way. So if you need an incentive, Come down and get a gift card during the time period that Lori mentioned and walk away knowing your status. Lori, thanks so much for sharing all this valuable information with us. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. And that wraps up our hour. Tune in next week for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCBFM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. Ah.
KRCBFM Windsor and K215CQ Santa Rosa. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next. <laughs> 